we are going to start this new series from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And what I want you to, to hear in this is the cry of our hearts um, from this story. Um, let's share in God's good word together. Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Jesus said, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I believe, help my unbelief. If we're honest, that's where we live. We do believe, we do have hope, but there are these pieces that we're just not quite sure about. Many of you all know that Chantel and I have started knocking doors in this area back in 1999, and in two and a half years, um, we were asked to start a new United Methodist Church, uh, to, on, to charter a new United Methodist Church, and to do that, you had to have more than 100 members. Imagine going door to door and saying, would you like to become a part of a new United Methodist Church? And they say, where do you meet? We say, we don't know. Where's it going to be? We don't know. Do you have any land? No. And they're like, boy, come back when you know something. I was 31. And so we did that over and over again, and, and we got some people to go to Lord of the Harvest Christian Church, and then over to Edmund North before their remodel, and then to Cheyenne Middle School, and we just kept asking. And so we set ourselves a date, September 9th, 2001. We will do it then. We had about 60 people, and I was panicked because I had to have 40 plus one. And on September 9th, 2001, 21 years ago, we are now an adult church officially. We had 101 members. We topped it with one more than we needed because God is always faithful. Amen? Always a little more than you need. And so we didn't have a building. We just had a dream. The dream of Acts 2, becoming people who would sing God's praises and serve God's children and share God's salvation until Christ comes again. Or you go to him, either way. And so we, as we do around here on big days, we have cake. That's what we like to do. And so we gathered. Uh, this is roughly, you can see the pond back there if we had one. Um, it's back there on the left. And so that would be about where the chapel is today. And so we, th we would thank God. And I cannot tell you how tired I was Sunday afternoon, about 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, after we had had service, we had done charter day, the bishop was there, all kinds of state representatives and people were there to say this is a new United Methodist Church. We had a huge party, we put up a tent, bounce houses, porta potties of course, because uh, you always need those when you, you know, you're out on the field. And then we went home. And I just, oh man, I just rested. I was like, God, this is good, you're so good, thank you. And, and back then, Monday was our, our Sabbath day, and so I was just like, whew, this is good. And then uh, Tuesday morning, I started getting phone calls. And all of the joy 
Many of you all know the Martins, Mark and Katrina. Little Anna now is uh, about 23. There's the baby there, Allison. Time passes. And now Allison is married. And Anna's there, and the, the young man on the left is Zach. He was not around yet. But now he's in an aerospace engineering program in Florida. And so all of our lives are going on except for within 48 hours, there was 9-11. And everything that we had been working on, I know that's pretty self-focused about 9-11, but I was like, seriously, God? Like, that's a short celebration. Like, we didn't even get a week. Like, I am beat. And now, now we have to figure out what are we going to do? I mean, is the world going to end? I mean, nobody knew that week what really was about to happen. And so we, we called Lord of the Harvest Christian Church and asked if we could have a prayer meeting there that night on Tuesday. And so we gathered again as a community. The first thing we did as a church, as an official United Methodist Church, was to gather and pray for our nation and pray for those around us because we were under attack at 9-11. We have people as a part of our church today who um, lost their loved ones um, in and around 9-11 and in the Oklahoma City bombing. So these days, these memory days are hard on people. And so we just want you to know we're praying for you. We love you, and we grieve your loss, even now. But we stayed committed to our dream. If you know it, say it with me. To create a people who sing God's praises, serve God's children, and share God's salvation until Christ comes again. That's what we do. That's what we're going to continue to do. That's who we are. First thing. And so we're in this new sermon series called Creed. And you say, well, what is, what is a creed other than a very nice-smelling cologne? It is a statement of the basic beliefs of a religion, an idea or a set of beliefs that guides the actions of a person or group. Now, you don't have to be Christian to have a creed. All kinds of groups can have a creed. But for us, we believe in the Apostles' Creed here in, in the Western church primarily. So the, some of you know the Apostles' Creed. Some of you don't know it because you never come to church on time. We do it <laughs> at the beginning of the service to remind us what we believe. So if you get here on time, you'll know the creed, and so will your kids. I'm just teasing, kind of. So, anyway, so when we think of the Apostles' Creed, think of it not so much as a creed, but like the Pledge of Allegiance. Now you say, well, that's, hold on now. It is a personal statement of faith. It's a statement of what makes the church the church, and it is our allegiance of the essence of the good news of Jesus. And therefore, the church it proclaims. So in the same way that we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, right? there are things that we're pledging to. It's not that it's all already happened. It's not that it's all in place. It's something that we continue to work at. Historian Justo Gonzalez says, to understand what it means, we may look at the Pledge of Allegiance. People recite it at various times right, as a sign of patriotism, as an indication that they truly stand for the flag, for the republic for which it stands. And yet, when you stop to think about it, there are statements in the Pledge of Allegiance, right, that many who recite them would personally question, at least interpret in their own particular way. To, to declare, for instance, that our nation is truly indivisible with liberty is to forget the Civil War. We've not always been indivisible. It's not a guarantee. Or perhaps to remember so vividly that we must avoid this at all costs. It is also to ignore the very real racial and political, social and economic divisions that are in our country today. So we can recite 
the words with liberty and justice for all when we know it's really liberty and justice for some. But we're working towards it for all still. Because it's simply not the case that we truly have all liberty and all justice for all people here. Not yet. Where the innocent suffer, sometimes the guilty go unpunished. Where the lack of basic resources, like clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, or Jackson, Mississippi, right? Those, those places have things in common that we just need to be honest about. And yet, in spite of all of this, we don't take a poll to determine which parts of the Pledge of Allegiance we're going to keep and which parts we're not going to. What we're going to do, we're going to ignore it. We don't do that. We don't take a vote because we realize that as we speak, as we believe, what we're speaking is partly actual fact. Yes, it's factual, but it's also an ideal to be realized. So when it comes to the creed, our creed, the creed is not so much my statement of faith as it is a statement of faith of the church, of what has always been believed and what we still believe and what we will believe and what we're going to continue to do in the name of God. In the same way that the Pledge of Allegiance shapes the nation. So what is the Apostles' Creed? Well, for those of you who are church nerds and you, you know your stuff, this might surprise you. The Apostles' Creed is actually the oldest creed. Most people are like, that's not what I learned in seminary. I heard it was the Nicene Creed. Well, people used to think that. I'm, I'm, we're going to learn some stuff today. The Apostles' Creed actually evolved from the ancient baptismal formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we baptize folks here, that's what we do. And we have reciprocity with all kinds of churches all around the world because we do it in this way. And as, as I said, the Apostles' Creed can actually be traced to Rome and is older than the Nicene Creed. Most people place the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, around 325 AD, AD at the Council of Nicaea. Yet when you look at the essentials of the Apostles' Creed, it actually goes back before that into the 2nd century to a document that they call R, which is almost exactly like the Apostles' Creed, and then it was sort of formulated more officially after that. Justo Gonzalez, who I think is really one of the greatest historians uh, of our lifetime. He was the youngest person to ever get a PhD in historical theology at Yale. Uh, he's got amazing books if you want to know more about church history. And he says the essential outline of R, the Apostles' Creed, seems to have widespread acceptance for the second century Christian writers from as far away as Gaul and North Africa when seeking to summarize the rule of faith. And so what would happen is they would have this very long time, sometimes more than two years, of catechism, of training, you know, sort of like our confirmation, only much bigger. And the earliest form of the creed was question and answer. And they would do this on the night before Easter. And the, the baptizans would come into the water and they would ask them, do you believe in God the Father? And they would say, yes, I believe in God the Father. And they would be immersed and they would come up out of the water. Then they would ask him a second question. Do you believe in the Son? Same thing. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? They call that trine immersion, by the way, which our founder, John Wesley, did all the way through the Anglican church, even with infants. So he would say, in the name of the Father, whoosh. Name of the Son, whoosh. Name of the Holy Spirit, whoosh. And then as it came to America, some of the ladies were like, John Wesley, my kids are getting ear infections. And so at the end of his life, John Wesley was like, sprinkle. Son, sprinkle. Holy Spirit. That, I mean, that's really how the Methodist church moved that. So we, we do that in all those forms. They're all valid. So again, Husso Gonzalez would say, these were the questions asked of a neophyte at the point of baptism. Apparently when already in the water and before this three immersions are pouring into the water over the head, as I explained. And by the 4th century, the creed was the high point of preparation for baptism. 
And so for the congregation of large, kind of like what we do every time somebody gathers and joins the church, reciting the creed was a reaffirmation of the faith they had declared at their baptism. We do this every time somebody joins. We continue to do this today. And thus was a part of renewal of the baptismal vows. It was only after the empire and society at large became Christian, at least nominally, in the 4th century, and practically all were baptized as infants. And that's how it was done in the early church. Uh, the father, the wives, the slaves, the kids, all of it, because of what the head of the household said went in that culture. So the use of this creed became less and less prevalent because it's impossible to teach infants the creed. So at that point, it became more of what it is today, a declaration of the faith of the church. So it started one way and has kind of moved to another way. So the purpose of the creed, though, was not to just tell people what the church believed. It was to actually push back against particular attacks, particular points of doctrine that were under attack. And, say, and, and so as you look at the creed, this creed in particular, there's a whole lot about Jesus and almost nothing about the Holy Spirit. Because in that day and time, in, the, in that time frame, there were a lot of questions about Jesus. Was he truly divine? Was he born of the Virgin Mary? You know, what was, how, how is this? And so the church would say, this is what you need to know. This is what we claim as faith. So its purpose was to determine the identity of Christianity in the midst of the wide variety of religions, superstitions, and syncretistic belief systems circulating in the first centuries of the Christian era. You will remember from our series on Galatians, Right? When Rome was in power, you had to worship Caesar as a god. And there were all these other gods. And if you're a Christian, you're trying to survive one. It'll probably cost you your life if they find out. And so it was, it was, you know, they had to meet in secret. And so this was, this was very important. So the Apostles' Creed then focuses on the life of Jesus following this order. And if you want to see it uh, lived out, uh, I thank David. You can go to our chapel and you can see the paintings. Um, that represent the creed. It's a beautiful work. Thank you, David, for doing that for us. Um, those are also the, the, the paintings that you see uh, on, the, on the materials that we'll have. The Apostles' Creed focuses on the life of Jesus following this order. Born, suffered, crucified, dead, buried. Now, you'll notice that up until recent history, there was also descended to hell. And I'm not exactly sure why that was taken out, um, other than people didn't like it. Um, but it's... That's where we started. So Jesus descends, rose, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and will come again. So that's, that's the creed. We'll do this over six weeks. So at the time of the Reformation, right, all the way to 1517, it remained. Luther, Calvin, the Church of England, of which we come out of, all affirm the Apostles' Creed. So it's not something um, that used to be or was just Roman Catholic. It's something that we've all been a part of if you're Protestant if you're a part of the United Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, Anglican Church, Lutheran Church, and a lot of the churches that came out of the teachings of John Calvin. So, again, Husso Gonzalez would say then, it's not so much my statement of faith as it is a statement of the faith of the church through the centuries. A statement that shapes the identity of the church much as the Pledge of Allegiance shapes the identity of the nation that we talked about. So, what Christians believe? What do we actually believe? Well, credo in Latin is that very first word. Credo simply means, I believe. And in, in seminary, uh, I took a year-long course to write a paper that says, I believe. And this is what I believe in systematic theology. And so when we start, um, I, you, some of you all don't know this about me, but when it comes to academics, I am not a wild and crazy guy. I'm like, what works? How can I pass? And so I took the Apostles' Creed, and I just went all the way through the Apostles' Creed for an entire year. 
and, and then wrote my credo out of that. And it starts like this. If you know it, say it with me. I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, the ecumenical version is creator of heaven and earth. We say maker is the traditional language. We, we hold on to that here. And so today I want us to talk about I believe in God, the Father Almighty. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to be Father Almighty? Well, first of all, we have to decide, is there God in the first place? Now that you've got the James Webb Telescope, you can actually see the beginning of time. They question the Big Bang Theory. Some people actually think we're in a loop. Anyway, we're not going there. That's really interesting stuff. But some of the greatest thinkers of our time, uh, like Max Planck in 1944, he says this. He says, all matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. He believed in God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it's not just Max Planck. You'll notice that he's not, you know, he's not all that bright, but, you know, because he's got the quantum mechanics and physics and the Nobel laureate for that. I mean, this guy knows his stuff. And he looks at the very essence of the universe and says there has to be an intelligent mind behind this. I believe in God and I believe in science. And so not just Max Planck in 44, but the big names of science that you would know, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Galileo, they all maintain faith in both science and God. Some of the greatest scientists that we know were Christians, or at least monotheists. And so this goes along with what the Apostle Paul believed. That the universe itself points to the existence of God. We find this in Romans when he writes the letter to the church in Rome. He says, ever since the creation of the world, his, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. And so we look and we are amazed, not just at Hubble, but at these you know, new images that we look back into the very beginnings of time. Things we've never been able to see before. And, and I don't know what you believe and I, and I don't know that the church has this laid out exactly, but what I believe is that the more we learn about science, the more we learn about God because truth is truth. And, and you can't undo truth because it's true. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you look at truth in our universe, you're looking at Jesus, that same essence. It's, it's true. The psalmist would describe it like this in Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And the heavens, the psalmist says, has set a tent for the sun. Isn't that a beautiful image? This, you know, the sun comes up, and coming out of the tent which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy and like a strong man runs its course with joy. They've been following the sun. It follows the same course. They knew that even thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hid from its heat. And all in Oklahoma summer say, amen. But yet in the midst of all this, whether it is out in the farthest reaches of space or in your backyard, God is a God of beauty and of consistency not of chaos, but of order and of joy and beauty. The same God that makes the sun, the moon, the stars, makes a rose. That's my rose in my backyard, by the way. And he makes, oh, cavalier puppies. Same God does it all. And so we give him thanks and praise. So when we declare, I believe in God, 
We're not just saying that we only believe that God exists. It's much more than that. And you, you know, uh, you've used the term believe in lots of different ways. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. We're like, oh, well, I believe that. Well, sometimes someone will say, did you see that happen? Do you know that's true? And rather than saying that's true, we're like, I believe that's the case. Now, see, that's a different kind of belief, isn't it? So we have to get down on what do we believe and what does it mean in this case. So the main thrust is that we trust God for our lives. It's not just we believe there is a God. We trust in God for our very life. And also that it is this God that we live and believe and move, have our being, that this God is both the foundation and the context of all of our belief. So when we say we believe in God, everything comes out of that belief. It's not just, oh, there is a God. Yet, in Roman society... The figure of a father was not loving so much as it was powerful. And so we get this, I believe in God the Father. And for the last hundred years, the way I grew up hearing it, the way many of you, and you'll hear me say this, I mean, Luke 15 shows God as an incredibly loving and compassionate father. Jesus is, of course, right about the description. And we know the God, our God through Jesus, right, because we're Christians. So that's true, but when this was written, that's not what they meant. It's something that we don't really understand. Because in the Roman culture, the father of the family, they had something called the paterfamilias. The father ruled over it as a master. It included all the women, all the slaves, all the grandchildren. And, and that authority could not be touched. And the father's authority over his children remained until he decided to emancipate them regardless of their age. If we practice this, my 88-year-old father could still mandate me, even at 54, that I can't do anything unless he tells me I can. That's how that worked. And there were certainly people that took advantage of that and ruled with terror. So when they thought of the father of a group, they didn't think of, oh, you know, snuggles. They thought, you don't cross them. This is the person with the most authority. This is the most powerful person in our world that they knew. So, yet, by declaring God to be Father, the creed was undermining fatherhood as it was then understood. Imagine, now slaves, now children, now wives, all the others subject to this paterfamilias were now claiming a father above this one. So, if you were under a bad father, there's hope for you now. When there was injustice, you actually served a greater father. When there was harm and abuse, there was a greater father. To correct that. This, this was life-changing, freedom-giving to people. And it shook the very core of the culture. The very thing that used to hold the culture together, the paterfamilias out of a reign of terror and hardship and authority, is now being undone by the church. It's no wonder people were out to get them. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I need to trust in something greater than myself. I need to trust and I need to give thanks to something greater than myself. I need to praise something greater than myself. And I need to worship one greater than myself. And I have any snow skiers in the house? Anybody like to go snow skiing? You know, from, from miles and miles and miles away, you look up those mountains, you're like, no human made that. Right? There's, there's something else that made that. And if you're lucky enough, you get to go to the top of the mountain with your youngest son. And wear groovy outfits. That's Taos, by the way. I mean, we, you know, when you get there, you're like, wow. And when you, when you engage in the beauty and the majesty of God, 
You, you begin to see what God has in the world, how, how the world is made, and your place in it. And so when we, when we actually begin to participate with God and what he's doing, we feel the most alive. We're in the flow. And we experience deep peace when we do God's will. I don't know if you've experienced this, but this, this is one of my favorite things that happens in life. I will feel a nudge of God or I will know that I need to be in a certain place at a certain time. And I don't know how in the world I'm going to get there. That might be a hospital visit. It might be someone about to die. It, it, it might, who knows what it might be. But I know I need to be there. And on my way from my home to that place, I never have to stop in Edmond, which never happens, right? You know, some of y'all try to get across town. It's easier to get to Dallas, practically, right? Just green, we call it green lighting, right? Have you ever had that happen to you? Where every time you come up, it's just green. And it's green, and it's green. And it's green. And you're there on time, ready to go, exactly where God wants you to be. That's a great feeling. I always wonder when I'm hitting all the red lights. I'm like, hmm, maybe I should just go home. Right? See, you and I, we are more connected to God and through God than we could ever imagine. Than you could ever imagine. I began to learn this when I was in high school. The reason that I was late to the game being a pastor was because, um, as you may know, the bishop... We have a bishop that rules over Oklahoma in a good and loving way with a cabinet, which are superintendents, which are like regional supervisors. And they moved my dad from Guthrie, where I was the president of my freshman class, about 350 kids. And I loved it. It was great. I was, you know, in varsity athletics, the whole thing. My sister had gone to Oklahoma State. And the bishop said, John, I need you to go fix this deal at Fairview, Oklahoma. There were 54 kids in that class, 50 of whom had started kindergarten together. There were four of us that did not. Me, the Nazarene kid, the coach's kid, and um, one of my good friends whose parents had been tragically killed. He had to come live with his aunt. So when I say we were outside, we were way outside. And just trying to make the best of it. So, um, actually, I was um, to be with your family, and I decided to go back to Fairview. Photo credits to my wife. That's where I went to high school. And, and just down the way... Um, was the Fairview United Methodist Church. Uh, they've built another one since. It's a beautiful facility. Um, great, strong church. But that's where I would go. That's where I grew up, sophomore, junior, senior year. And it was around that time in the 80s that... Any of y'all see Rocky Three with Clubber Lang? The Eye of the Tiger? Well, if you're a high school kid with Eye of the Tiger, I mean, all you want to do is be like Rocky and strong and cool and, you know, make the varsity team for football. And so I thought, what better way to do it than to go punch dead cows at the Fairview Meatpacking Plant and get buff, just like Rocky did. What happened was I got pneumonia from going from minus 30 degrees to 108 degrees. Not the best idea. But it was in that um, time that I learned some really hard things about life and death. There's a thing called a cattle chute, where you pull up the truck and you... They go there and they push them down in the deal. And then they go closer and closer and they come back and back and they don't want to go because they know they're about to die. And they get to the last deal. And right through that um, kind of door there is a little hole where you put the 22 gun. They shoot them in the head and they fall down. They roll into the kill floor. Now, you may not have ever been to a kill floor. I don't recommend it. You'll never want to eat meat again. But as it happens, they go and they, they put it on a hook that looks like this. Pulls it up to the top. And then they can work on it much easier. That way you're not having to move it. It's all there for you. 
So it just so happened that the, one of the days I was there, I was 16, I think, 16, 17. They put me on a ladder, about a 20-foot ladder, because the USDA inspector said, we're shutting you down. You can't cut any more meat until this place is cleaned up. There was also a smokehouse, and you just had to make it clean. So that was my job in the middle of summer. And so I'm on a ladder, jeans, T-shirt, and I'm scrubbing with soap above my head, above hooks like that that are below me. And I'm doing that. I've been at it about two hours. I'm kind of getting shaky. I'm, you know, I'm tiring. I'm getting nervous because I'm looking at all this stuff. And I hear a crack. And then the ladder goes away from me. So I, I grab that rail. And I pray to God, hold on, hold on, hold on. Really what I thought was, I can't die. I'm still a virgin. Is what I thought. I mean, that's what 16-year-old boys think. Is that not true? I mean, don't answer that. But that, that's what I thought. This can't be happening. So I grab it, and then I throw my legs on it, and I get this idea of, like, hang on. I just got this piece, like, hang on. You can do this. Hang on. And then I, I got this idea, well, use your legs. And so I did. So I used my legs, and I put my legs around it, put my arms around it, and they're both shaking. And then you can see there's not much room there. It's maybe, like, 18 inches. I got this idea, like, just... Squeeze hard and turn around and wedge yourself between and maybe you can stay there because all the meat cutting was still going on in the other room, right? They couldn't hear. They couldn't hear my screaming like a small child, right? I was like, help me, help me, help me. And so fortunately, the break time about two o'clock came. And so I heard the, you know, the saws go down and a guy named Paul walked in. He's like, what are you doing up there? I was like, just hanging out. Get me down, right? Just get me down. And he did. I was very shaky. I worked a little bit longer, and they're like, kid, you just, just go home. Like, you're, you just got to go home. So I do. I go home, and, you know, you throw your, basically you throw your clothes, like, in the fire because you don't want to wear them again. And um, my dad was a swimmer. He would swim about two and a quarter miles twice a week. He would drive from Fairview over to Enid and back. As I got home, dad got home from swimming at the Y in Enid. And he came directly to me, and he said, son, what were you doing about 1 o'clock today? I was like, oh, just hanging around. He goes, no, seriously, what were you doing at 1 o'clock today? I said, well, I was hanging on a ladder trying not to die. I said, huh. He said, all I know is that I was on lap 40, and the Holy Spirit came to me, and I threw off my goggles, and I just stood right up in the pool, and I just had this vision of you in danger in this big, huge, white room. And all I knew in my spirit was to pray that you would hang on. Why was that? I said, well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did, because I was in a big white room needing somebody to pray for me to hang on. And I, I believe with all that I am that had my dad not been there in prayer for me, if he had not paid attention to the Holy Spirit, I might not be here today. Probably wouldn't be. We are much more connected to God, the people of God, the prayer of God, the faithfulness of God through one another than we ever imagined in real life-saving ways. Your prayers matter. Your presence matters. Your gifts matter. Your service matters. All of it matters, friends. And it's mattered for a long time. For those who shape the Apostles' Creed, belief in God is meant to fundamentally change our perspective on the world. It's changed mine. On our place in it and on our own lives. And so we, we have these beautiful things that if God is Father, then all of us as humans are brothers and sisters, including us. If God created the heavens and the earth, then we are children, and we have responsibility to care for it. 
If we're children and heirs, as we learned in Galatians and in Romans, then we are then responsible for how we live and the world. If God is almighty, all-powerful, and everywhere, we are never alone, friends. You're never alone. You might be in solitude, but you're not alone because the Holy Spirit's with you. And ultimately safe. The world is a perfectly safe place to be, Dallas Willard says. And if God is always with us, then there's always hope. Amen? Always hope. So in Romans 5, Paul writes this. He says, and not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces what? Say it with me. Hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The church created the book of Acts chapter 2. Justo Gonzalez says, it reminds us of some of the central points of the gospel and invites us to count ourselves among the many throughout the generations who have expressed their faith in its words. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we are believing with thousands and millions and billions of people who have gone before us. Some would say there's still more than 2 billion Christians on the planet. We are connected to a lot more people than you could ever imagine. They need our prayers and we need their prayers. We need to be there for one another. You say, well, that's kind of a tall order, Pastor Mark. How are we going to do this? We'll, we'll start here. As our action step, I want you to think about that paterfamilias deal. In what area do you need God to be all-powerful over an earthly authority? And then when you actually think about that, ask God to be your father, your real father. The one that judges rightly, the one that loves you perfectly, the one that empowers you to do things you could never do. There, every one of us in this room in some way has something that we've never been able to get past. There's still pain there, there's still grief there, and, there, and we know that you, you're just not going to beat it. For me personally, after three building projects, I know you cannot beat City Hall. And, and it, I mean, there's just some things you just can't do in your own strength. You have to have God show up. And so ask God to get in it. It's, our prayer is not, God, get me out of this. It's, God, get into this with me and show me what you, my next step is. And so in closing, I want us to think about the creed like this. When I recite the Apostles' Creed, I'm declaring myself part of that countless multitude throughout the centuries who have found their identity in the same gospel and the same community of believers of which I am now a part. A multitude that includes martyrs, saints, missionaries, and great theologians. But where in the final analysis, all are nothing but redeemed sinners, just as I am. So if you know this, say it with me. How do we start every worship service from 1999 to now? We say, good morning, saints. Good morning. Some of you do show up on time. That's how we do it. So this is us. When we say the creed, we're not saying, look at us, look at us. When we say the creed, we're saying, look at him, look at him. Look how good the Father is. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Amen? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.